What up? It's DJ EFN, one half of the Drink Champs Crazy Hood Productions. And right now, you're tuned in to Fly Fidelity. Let's go. First, First I say, what, what we're going to do. Then, then you say, say, I don't know. What do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do. I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. What's going on and welcome to another episode of Fly Fidelity with your host Luke Bailey. On this week's episode, we speak with one half of Drink Champs, DJ EFN. From mixtapes to festivals, artist management, development, radio production and podcasts, EFN's career dates back to the 90s. In this show, we'll be exploring this journey in a deep dive one-on-one conversation. Make some noise. Nickel, DJ EFN, Drew, Oh Sizzle. You're one of the first consistent mixtape DJs from Florida in the early 90s. Who would have been some of the earliest artists locally that inspired you to set the foundations of Miami representation on mixtapes? Um, That's a great question. I mean, I guess I don't know that I was necessarily inspired or, or thinking of the artist, even though I was, but it was it was just um in general like the whole scene not just the artist by itself but the artists and the b-boys and the djs and 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 just everything i wanted to to be represented properly mm. and i felt mixtapes was the way that i could do that i could i could support the scene and contribute to the scene and 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 in terms of specific artists like there was this artist that i've talked about on drink champs and i've talked about over the years and i've had her on my album uh, Mother Superior, she she's vital in terms of the the type of artist that was inspiring us and and helping uh, create our scene, like an identity for our scene, better said. Right. And you know, I I had gotten her on my early mixtapes, and um and you know we had an artist named Society that was on Luke Records that that had like a he had a like a, a hit that came you know like a it, it, being on luke records but he was like a diet like an mc you know he he he, he did hip-hop records versus miami bass records and so he was someone that that you know was definitely inspirational and and i mean we just had so many artists um but it like i said it wasn't necessarily just about the artist for me it was more about in general wanting to represent miami's hip-hop scene and and this in the mixtapes was my way of being able to try to contribute well, let's talk about the Miami hip-hop scene. You moved to Miami from L.A. in 86, the same year 2 Live Crew released their debut album. When do you think about the 2 Live Crew as one of the earliest perceptions people had of Miami hip-hop nationally? What were your feelings as a fan back then? I mean, I was a huge fan of 2 Live Crew. I, I felt that 
there was no difference to me sonically between Two Life Crew and Run DMC and a lot of other artists at the time. Yeah. It was more subject matter that was different. And and so, you know, they were huge. They were huge to us even locally, even though they were from Miami. We didn't like I, I never thought of them as, you know, like a, a group in my backyard, like or you know, like that local. They were just so big. Um, and we just and, and like I said, I just saw them in the same vein as everything that was going on in hip hop at the time. Like I felt like lyrically they, you know, like their flows were dope. It was just what they were talking about is what stood them apart. You know? Yeah, we're talking about a different side of the coin, aren't we? Which was as necessary as everything else that was going on back then. Were you affected by the ripple effects of the Miami stereotype that was caused by Two Live Crew? Did that ever frustrate you? For sure, it did. Um, you know, and, and that was part of the reason why I wanted to to, to do the mixtapes and was so passionate about helping create our hip hop identity in Miami. Because although Two Life Crew and Miami Bass and that whole scene is a part of our identity, yeah, there was something that was happening in Miami in the late '80s, early '90s, um, with you know the rise of of, of hip hop, mainly coming from out of New York. And, you know, you have L.A. starting to bubble. You have Atlanta, Chicago. But it's like, you know, this 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 lyrical hip hop is bubbling. But what happened is a lot of people migrated from New York to Miami. And so the style of dressing, which was at the time in hip hop was popularized, was a lot of that fashion was coming from New York. So you had these like they call, we called them New Yorkers in school. You had these kids that were, you know, in, in a sense, hip hop kids. But everything about them was this New York flavor. And so it created this this uh, this negative dynamic between like the Miami local guys and girls and, 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 and these New Yorkers. And then eventually became like this thing where the Miami scene, which is the two life crews and, and, and that whole Miami base scene, looked at this hip hop scene and these people as, you know, as like... Like they were at, like they were like like invading Miami, and so right. people like myself were stuck in the middle of that dynamic. Because I, here I am, a, a kid from LA, but being raised in Miami, I'm very proud of Miami. And then you have these hip hop kids from New York that that listen to the stuff that I listen to and, and the stuff that I want to hear. You know, not to say I don't listen to Miami bass, but this is what I'm really into. And then you have my my roots, to, sort of say, in, in terms of the Miami side of people who are proud to be from Miami and these people are, are clashing. And so it created this, this, this parallel uh, scene of each other that, that were kind of at odds with each other. And so here I am in a sense, trying to bring them together in the way of, because the Miami bass scene was always proud of being from Miami, but the hip hop scene in Miami wasn't as proud because of this New York identity that people, you know, inherited. And so that was what what I was trying to like, you know, weave together. Like, nah, we could do this hip hop, and we could still be proud and be diehard Miami folks. Well, you mentioned the term clashing in terms of the South fighting to break through for recognition. Do you think Southern artists get enough credit today for developing such a variety of musical scenes from such a vast lineage of different influences? Whereas I think you look at the East and West, they didn't have to worry about trying to establish such a complicated identity, did they? You know, it's funny that you say it because when I now I, I mean I, I feel the same way the way that you express it is how I've always felt that they didn't have the same problems but in New York they had that within the boroughs they had those problems true and then when I've talked to to folks out of 
Cali and, and you know, people that, that, you know, pioneers and people that I respect now that I have the opportunity to talk to them a lot more through drink champs and stuff like that. Um, they had the same issue. And they had their they had their issue of like the cats that wanted to be lyrical and kind of like look they they were fans of what was going on in New York and they wanted to do that for the West Coast. So they had those same issues and 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 I found out you know throughout time meeting artists and people from 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 different regions that every city had the same identity crisis. Um, mm. And I and we talk about it in Drink Champs. Nori kind of like he he says that i that i hate on new york i never of course i don't hate on new york it's the birthplace of hip-hop but i exp, i merely expressed that what was happening is that the industry of new york not the people and not necessarily the artists but the industry like the the gatekeepers sort of say right were very new york centric and didn't allow much anything else in and so what happens is is that that's the only thing being amplified is this new york uh way of doing things or sound and so Everybody else, you know, we liked it, but we wanted to be able to represent our own style on that level that they were able to do. But we didn't have industry in our cities. And so it took a while. And then finally, you know, we broke through. But we I have like this weird outlook or might even be able to say conspiracy theory where I feel like had that not been the case, you would have had a whole different sound from mm. the South mm. because the South was mimicking these guys out of New York, but putting their own, their own style to it just the same way as LA did. Like you would never think of NWA as a, as, as being like a New York inspiration, but it was like, they were saying that, that they were looking to these artists out of New York and they were, they were kind of replicating it in their own style and, you know, King T and, and people like that. Like a big daddy, stop at the arc or put some gas in my caddy. All my, my wheels, shine up my Dayton's. Check my 12 gauge, I see Jack is just waiting. Got it in my car, rolled up the tinted glass, look for my zap tape to pop in my dash. Can't find it, forget it. Went under my seat, found my old five tape of the song Need Deep. So I popped it in, then I pumped it up. Love hearing funk because disco sucks. Somebody got chills when the bass started pounding. I took off because I'm going to town. It won't be back tomorrow. Don't have to go to school. Ready, get ready. I'm finna act a fool. But wait, hold up, hold up. How competitive was it for you in that scene back then between living in the South and representing for the South and having both the East Coast and West Coast dominating across the country? How competitive was it really for you back then? Um, You know... In some ways, it was very competitive, and in others, it wasn't because it, it just wasn't so many. Like when when myself and my crew, you know, took on this mission statement that everything we do is to put Miami on the map. Right. There there wasn't a lot of hip hop kids in Miami, or hip hop heads, artists, whatever, producers, whatever that were willing to do that. They they thought that it was corny to claim Miami in this style of hip hop. You know, and and at the time, just saying hip hop to someone like if you talk to to these guys in, in that were down with like, you know, like uh, DJ Uncle Al or, you know, Poison Clan, or, you know, mm. the words hip hop to them equated New York. 
And so there was a point where the, the only time that changed, and I'm sorry that I, I kind of go off in different directions, but um, the only way that that, the only time that that changed for Miami, like like people, like inner city Miami, where they, they looked at hip hop as being a New York thing, is when the radio stations finally took on the slogan, where hip hop lives, mm. is where that, that's, that mind, you know, that, that shifted where hip hop, oh, okay, I get it. Hip hop is this music that's everywhere. It's not just New York. But so, so in a sense, going back to your question is that I didn't have much competition here because nobody was willing to do it the same way I was doing it. Right. But, you know, I was competing at, at a point with the entire, you know, country and, and, and I was competing with every single, all these big mixtape DJs out of New York and, and other cats in other cities that were a little bit more established than us. So in that sense, I was competing heavily. Um, so there was there was the non-competition and competition. Got you, got you. Who would have been the first mixtape DJs that inspired you to pursue a lane in a mixtape circuit over radio and over the club? Um, I would say getting Kid Capri tapes early was 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 inspirational, and then uh, like all these New York mixtapes were very inspirational. The, the Clues and the Tony Touches and the SNSs and the Ron Gs, um, and I can go on and on with different mixtape DJs. And and then, then there's local cats that did it, but they didn't. They weren't consistent. So, seeing some of the local DJs make a tape or two here and there was very inspirational to me. But my 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 inspiration came from seeing these New York guys, you know, being so consistent and saying, "I need to provide that for Miami. I need to provide the same quality, the the same." Everything you're gonna get out of that tape, because those are the tapes that everybody, all the heads in Miami wanted to get. So I needed to mm. to at least be seen equally to those to be able to compete. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the tapes. When you reflect on the legacy and impact of Crazy Hood mixtapes as a series, what do you think was the secret sauce that made those tapes so unique? I think it was the the sprinkling of 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 the the local scene and. And whether it's in the titling of the of the mixtape, the intros in the mixtape, you know, I always had someone local. If it wasn't my group, it was somebody else locally on there. But I was very careful. I didn't want to make these tapes basically demos for local artists because I knew that it wouldn't serve the purpose that I needed it to serve. You know, I wanted these tapes. I wanted people to get the same exclusives that they were getting on a Clue yeah. tape and, and want my tape. Because it has the new Jay Z, uh, uh, well, they never. At, when I put out Jay Z for the first time, no one had heard him. But whatever, whatever artist at the time was popping, you know, I wanted them to get that same exclusive. And be like, oh man, I need that tape because it has this new record from so and so. And then when they got it for that reason, then they hear a local artist and they hear someone shouting out areas of Miami. They 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 look at the tape cover and it's called Miami State of Mind, you know. 305 live or whatever you know like whatever i titled them and and so that's what was important to me and that's what i feel like you know made my tapes pop in a different way you changed out that was you i tried i tried <laughs> <laughs> no you did you absolutely did i was wondering who would have been your first east coast slash west coast to miami connection in terms of a mixtape feature can you remember oh man i can't remember the very first well I'll tell you this. So it, it, then now you have to become, you have to like time travel and put yourself in these, in these time periods. So, um, you know, I made my first couple of mixtapes and, and they were basically, they, they were circulated around the neighborhood. 
and and people were like, oh, this, this is cool, you know. Just having records and being able to manipulate music and put it on tape and record it was a big deal already, you know. So that was cool, but it only was like within the neighborhood. Then I went to a, a local hip hop convention that came to Miami called uh, How Can I Be Down? And I had a little, little, well, me and the whole crew, like we had a couple tape recorders and I was like, you see an artist, you get a drop, you know? And that's what we did. We swarmed all these artists and it was a, it was a cool time in hip hop where these artists were even just happy to be recognized and happy to be in Miami, happy for a DJ from another region to be interested in their music. And, and, you know, so everybody was really receptive to, 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 to talking these are, I'm talking about Busta and Biggie and pun you know that that's what i'm talking about you know uh, boot camp click like exhibit you know when he just had paparazzi out like this this is the era i'm talking about and and i'm getting these drops from these people and those drops were such a game changer because at, at that time i'm just a, another dj with turntables recording you know tapes and trying to give them out but but nothing really you know like made me stand apart from everybody else and no, nothing made me special. And so now, and this is the thing, this is what, what really made it special. I made sure that the instructions for myself and for everybody else was when you get a drop, you tell them to say my name, but you, but they also have to say one of, one of a couple things, either Miami has to be in the drop or crazy hood Productions. So my name and hopefully all three of those things. Or Kendall, which is the neighborhood that we're from, the, the hood we're from. Dope. So now I, I come back out of How Can I Be Down with like maybe 100 drops Wow. from all the top artists in hip-hop at the time. And and guys that haven't, haven't broke yet that I'm – because I'm so in tune with the underground that I'm recognizing cats. Like Exhibit, nobody recognized them at that time. Wow. What we year was this? just had paparazzi. Oh, man, this is like 94, right? Right. Um. Paparazzi was was buzzing and and the vinyl wasn't the the official vinyl with his face wasn't even out yet. Wow! It was just the the radio version. So when I went up to him, I had like a really keen sense of of who someone was. Like I don't know I, I don't know how I how we knew who some of these people were mm-hmm. without ever seeing them. But when I told him, you know, exhibit, he got so hyped. And and this was going happening with a lot of artists, you know, and and even the bigger ones. Like I said, this is a special time in hip hop where they were just happy to be recognized outside of New York or wherever they were from. So I'm getting these drops. I come back super inspired. You know, I network like crazy with a lot of like executives, A&Rs to get leaks in the future. I get a bunch of white label records. I make, you know, my first couple mixtapes after that. And those drops, having these artists say, you know, my name, say my crew's name, say my city, that was unheard of at the time. And when those mixtapes started to, to play out of car stereos and someone's hearing, you know, um, fucking, uh, you know, uh, you know, anybody. I mean, you think of any pun, right. Biggie, uh, J. Ru the Damager, Keith Murray, cannabis. Method Man, like cannabis. Like hearing these people say, yo, you, you know, you rock with DJ EFN, Crazy Hill Productions, 305 Miami, whatever. People were like, what the fuck? And that that was the beginning of everything changing for the mixtapes incredible and for my brand speaking of your crew would you give any credit to wu-tan for informing the way crazy hood and the alliance navigated as a collective and a crew back then absolutely i i studied i'll tell you some of the different 
entities that I put it, you know, that I studied to like kind of create my own strategy with with the crew was Wu Tang was definitely very uh, impactful and influential. I, I I looked at Easy E and how he did Ruthless Records, dope Luke Luke Records and how you know Luke what he did independently, um, and and EPMD with Hit Squad like that was hugely influential as well like that that collective of people and so all of that together um you know i i kind of assembled my own strategy based on those different entities and kind of trying to study them as much as i could through like the source magazine interviews and stuff like that love that well going back to luke what are your recollections of bringing Rick Ross and Recognize together for Yes Indeed to 2005, which pays homage to society's Yes Indeed, which was right. on Luke's label, as you mentioned earlier? That was that's an interesting story because, I, so Rick, you know, he was making his chops as a battle MC. Uh, he had won the MTV battle. He got signed to a a record label that was uh, funded by this porn company, big porn <laughs> company. They're still they're still around. What company? Uh, Reality King. Oh wow! Bang Buzz. Remember the Bang Buzz people? Remember that? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're still around. So this porn company was is was huge. It was actually one company that had to split. They were so big, the two owners split the companies for whatever reasons, and so they made a record label called South Beat Records. And they signed Mayday. They signed Recognizes before Recognizes joins the group Mayday. Right. And they make me, uh, they bring me in to, to be like the head of marketing for the label. And so, and I'm trying to think, you know, my my memory has really gotten bad with uh, alcohol these days. But <laughs> but if I'm not wrong, one of the, you know, I got with Rec. I mean, I already knew Rec. We already, we already were cool. I already, ha- I think I'd had him on my mixtapes. But I wanted to do something with him around the time that all that was going down. And Rock, and I wanted to give like Rec a certain credibility. To me, it was always important to not not to have like street credibility in the sense of like people thinking you're gangster. But I always felt that if in your own city, everybody needs to, to at least know who you are, know about you, know about know that you're out there doing stuff. Whether they really fucked with you or not. That wasn't as important as, as the fact that they needed just to know your name. And I wanted Breck to be known in other parts of the city that he wasn't at that time known. You know, he was he was this battle MC that was in the battle circuit. He 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 looks like a white dude, even though he's not. He's South African. Um, and he's kind of he's mixed. And so I wanted to kind of expose him and get and get him, you know, a different look. And so I felt like Ross at the time, who's just coming up, uh he he's you know he want, he's open to be on my mixtapes as well and so i felt like it'd be dope to do the society record over and you know which to me is a is a miami record a miami anthem when it came to hip hop and get ross and then get wreck and i felt like having wreck on a record with ross was going to give him you know a different look you know different people were going to discover him in, in in the miami scene and so it was funny because when i presented it to ross he wasn't really too down with it. Really? <laughs> he was, he just wanted to be on it by himself. He was like, I was like, nah, I kind of, this is what I want to do. And this is kind of like how this is going to go down for my mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> so at first he wasn't too, too open to it, but he, he warmed up to it. And, and 
and he ended up doing it and, and I feel like and the rest is history you know the record got done classic the tape's also hosted by Nori Yeager isn't it what are your favorite memories of working with Nori back then so going back to your earlier question about who's the first uh artist you know like national artist or east coast or whatever you know although I probably had artists before Nori and I had all those drops like I mentioned which was a game changer Nori was the first artist of that level to consistently work with me where where it just looked like we were just partners like we were just you know like I'm his dude in Miami and he you know he was advocating for me in New York and and so we linked when he was on the promo run for the Capone Riega album um my homie brought him to my store, Crazy Goods. Me and my homie, Eddie Giggs, had a hip-hop clothing store called Crazy Goods. And we uh, he came by, and I had a four-track, digital four-track, that I, I would have artists do freestyles. And he came, he laced a bunch of freestyles, we hit it off. His crew got cool with my crew, and we just kept working. And I was very persistent about staying in touch with him. Like, he was, he was open to it. Like, he was like, yeah, man, hit my manager, hit my dudes, you got all my people's info. Let's work. And so I took advantage of that and I was very persistent and I and I got him on pretty much almost every mixtape after that. He was either, you know, either there was I was breaking, you know, new music. They were they were servicing me with leaks that they were straight out the studio or he was doing exclusive freestyles or he was hosting the entire tape. But he was consistently on there. And, and that was another game changer for me because how big Nori became, like, you know, we met before his solo album dropped. And then his solo album dropped, and he's on my mixtapes. And another thing we did is I, I was I brought him down to do his first show as a solo artist for the NORE album. We promoted, we we booked that show, and we did that show. I did it everything through Violator management and all of that. So that you know, so then he saw me at that point, and, and you know, we linked again, and he's like, oh, you know, and it just solidified the relationship to the point where when Compone Compone got out of prison, they hired me to set up. The Capone's like the first Capone Noriega show since Pone being in prison in Miami. Nice. Which I put together for them. Nice. Nice. What about yourself, Ryman? Is there any DJ specifically that inspired you to rap on the Crazy Hood mixtape intros? You know, that was more for fun and jokes. You know, I, I, I took it serious though. But yeah, for sure. Tony Touch would rhyme. I have a lot of respect for Tony for doo wop. Um, those are the main two that I would look to in terms of like the DJs rhyming on their own stuff and, and doing it where I thought it was dope. And, and so, you know, I would have fun with it, but you know, but I was, that was never, my goal was never to be an MC. So, so I, you know, I'd let it go after a while. What's going on? If you are still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast, why not become a patron of Fly Fidelity at patreon.com slash flyfidelity. Becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week. It also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter, you'll be able to access exclusive content to you, including patron updates, offers and discounts, a monthly secret podcast, early access, and so much more. Shit, it doesn't do any good what you 
You mentioned record labels leaking records to you, of course, as part of the process. Can you remember the first time a record label leaked a record and served you with a cease and desist at the same time? Not specifically, but that was happening often. You know, the A&Rs, they, they, they used the mixtape DJs to break artists, to break records, um, and set groundworks for for these artists that would later would be you know would be bigger. But this is before radios messing with them, so right. they needed us, especially in a market like Miami, where early in the '90s, our commercial radio didn't have hip hop mix shows. We didn't have you know hip hop on on commercial radio out here. So the only outlets for for these labels to to break these records and break these artists was through mixtape DJs, college radio, or underground radio. And I did all three. And so I was utilizing and it got to a point, though, where I remember talking to these A&Rs and they're like, and, and I found out that the mixtape DJs in New York, what they were doing is they were getting dats, dat tapes right out the studio. As soon as these artists recorded something, the engineer would, would you know, dub a couple dat tapes and give it to some key mixtape DJs to start getting that buzz out. And so... I forgot who told me or who put me on the game. They were like, got a dat machine? And I'm like, mm. I'm like, nah. And they're like, well, you better get yourself one if this is what you want, you know, if you want to get these type of leaks. And that's what I did. I went out and I got a dat machine. And that was another game changer because now I'm getting, you know, stuff fresh out the studio where they're literally just recording it. They press up. They'll, like, the a and tell me we're doing only five leaks of this. It'll be like Clue, Tony Touch. Uh, you know, whatever, like three or four mixtape DJs out of out of New York, and then like me will be the the fifth one. You know? Do you have any conflicted thoughts about you know what's hanging in the studio on the wall? The plaque I'm thinking about from Tech Nine, the the plaque that hangs on your wall, which which was certified by the same association that historically targets mixtape DJs. Was there ever a time where you felt like you were a target yourself? Do you have? conflictive thoughts on the riaa oh i do and also when it comes to like doing the 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 pirate radio stuff we were getting i mean that's the fcc but it's all to me it's all the same crap and and um yeah i mean i never thought of the plaque people you're right like i never i never really thought of of the plaque behind me as of oh yeah these are the same people but i'm more i i never really thought of them as the bad guys i really looked at the executives of these labels of the owners of these labels right. you know who just disregarded the culture because mixtapes were a part of the culture it's it was it was a bedrock foundation on 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 how these artists you know made their way navigated to get to the top and they needed that credibility if they didn't have that credibility in the mixtapes and in the streets and in the clubs they they weren't going to have a career most likely so to use us for that purpose and then try to sue us you know it was to me it was these labels were the bad guys the, the either the anr some of them knew that that would happen and still proceeded to leak us records without warning us um or fighting it at the executive level mm. you know but really it was these boardroom guys that are like you know and these lawyers all right well you know this is piracy we're gonna we're gonna clamp down on it and and I and I and I really was upset with it, and I, I'm still upset about it, and, and what they did to drama, and what they did yeah. to a lot of people. Like I understand piracy, but piracy is when you take a whole album, you dub it, you try to sell it, you know. But anybody that knew anything about hip hop, 
this was a part of the culture yeah. and it wasn't piracy it was it, we were doing things for the artists that nobody else could do we were we were a part of their promotional apparatus and they were then they were treating us like criminals it wasn't cool I gave you a stab, Gucci this, Fendi that yeah. Ballberry bag, shoes in the hat to match uh -huh. I like the way it look for bitch, I ain't buying that I hate to be the bearer of bad news But no more private shoes uh -huh. When I just wanna chill, you wanna go out Woo. See me probably with some other chick you wanna show out You say I'm wrong when I dog your ass like I should Now you can reminisce on the times I treated you good When you surround me Is it cause I won't provide for you there's a time from, I guess, 2003 to 2007 during the 50 Cent era where mm. the lines start to become blurred between what the mixtapes traditionally were back then and mixtapes essentially turning into street albums. Right. It kind of destroyed the demo tape. How do you think that moment elevated and changed artist development and awareness? It, I mean, it, it, it was huge. Again, this is the mixtape DJ is kind of, and, and I've never really thought about it until you were saying it, but the mixtape DJ inspired that movement for artists to redefine what a mixtape was because they were doing, they were rhyming on other people's music um, on the, on on people's mixtapes, on DJ's mixtapes. That was a, that was what they were doing. And so to take that and do a whole, basically a whole album, a street album like that, which is what 50 started doing, yeah. was game changing for artists because now what they can do is they can take familiar records that are on the radio and they're popping and they're resonating with people and put themselves on it and get and it, and it kind of gives them a chance to get to these ears that they might might have a harder time getting to. And, and I feel like that definitely was a game changer for for artist development. But but it was a game changer for DJs because it like I said, I feel like that idea was birthed from a DJ's idea of like, oh, I need you to I want you to rhyme on this record. That would be dope to hear you on this record. And it was, you know, one or two of those type of records on any given mixtape to where the artist is like, uh-huh, I'm going to do the, a whole project like that and put it on the streets. And a whole generation grew up thinking a mixtape was that versus what a mixtape was before that. What about your experience at with labels? I'm thinking about Def Jam specifically. What are your fondest memories running Def Jam street teams in South Florida? Oh man, that was a dream come true to to think about a kid, uh, you know, just a, a hip hop fan who who you gave me a flyer from one of these artists. And I like I looked at that flyer like it was made out of gold. To all of a sudden being the person who gets all this, all these promotional things and is a part of the, of the rollout, representing my city at that. Like I am the guy in Miami that's going to to make sure that, you know, I'm a part of your whole marketing strategy. And, and like I said, you know, and, and now having boxes and boxes of all this stuff that if I had one of them back in the days, I would have been like. Oh, this is from a record label, and this is mm. from this artist, and you know it was crazy to me. It was like having the Willy Wonka ticket. Yeah. 
<laughs> and so so it was it was it was it was dope man and and to to do that for Def Jam you know rest in peace uh to my homie Doc Fresh who who had the Def Jam account in Miami for years and, and he was a legend in terms of like street team stuff and marketing out here he um you know he passed on the account to me which is very rare in 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 that in the street team world he he like like he's like, yeah, man, this is now, you know, you take it over. Like I wasn't gonna if I don't remember if it got offered to me or not, but I would have never taken taken the account if it was gonna be taken away from him. Wow. And he basically like passed the baton to me and to, to and to be able to, you know, don the Def Def Jam jacket and be a, a representative of Def Jam was for a hip hop kid growing up in the eighties and nineties, like that was that was huge, man. And here we are in 2022 with the Drink Champs podcast, which we're going to navigate and talk about in a couple of minutes. Was there a specific moment where you realized you needed to begin shifting your focus away from mixtapes to other endeavors? Absolutely. When, when what you spoke about, when artists started to to take, you know, do those mixtape projects, and that defined what a mixtape was. When the CD era, like, I, although I did stay active in the CD era, to me, the CD era was really the ending of mixtapes as i knew them because you know a tape a mixtape to me was exactly that a cassette tape because if you were able to you know as a fan listen to a tape that means you were invested in that dj and, and their style because you couldn't easily you know fast forward and rewind and go to the, skip to the next track so you had to really like their style and what they were doing so when it went to cds i was like all right this is different I continued doing it more so to exp- you know to help expose artists and 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 contribute in that way but the art of being a mixtape DJ to me was kind of lost in that and then you know the internet age which was upon us at that same time and growing and the blogging era mm. I was like okay this is this is it records are being leaked on these blogs on these on these DSPs like it that's it you know it's 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 a rap and and I just felt like you know, it didn't make any sense for me. I, the passion had left me. Once passion leaves me for something, I, I just can't do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a period after Militainment Crazy Raw Radio where the show ends, Nori goes on the road and you focus on managing Mayday. Mm-hmm. How much do you credit your time doing radio for teaching you how much of yourself to give to an audience and how much do you apply that to Drink Champs in the beginning? Well, that that show was exactly Drink Champs. We did it for for XM and then Sirius XM when they merged, and it was a one hour show done in my studio, and we actually had a, a my homie DJ KNS. He would do a, a mix in that in that one hour show. I don't know if it was one hour or two hours, but and and all the antics and all everything we did was drink champs before drink champs. We just had less guests because we were doing it in South Miami. This was on you know a, a period in Nori's life where he's starting to you know get back on his feet after reggaeton. So not not too many people were coming to check us. And but what we walked away from that was wanting to do something like that again. Mm. And and you know, and it's funny that you're saying about if I learned like about my voice or whatever it's like I never you know, when going back to the mixtapes, I was never one that wanted my my face to be in the front, my voice to be in the front. Any of that. I I purposely just wanted to be a DJ because he played the back role, he or she. So I felt like 
you know, I've always wanted to be kind of in the shadows a little bit, but be the strong man behind, behind you know, in the shadows. And, it, you know, doing that, those shows, I realized, you know, and there was a lot of things happening economically in the States and stuff, and I'm sure around the world, that, you know, I have to, you know, make a decision to, to put myself more in the front. And right. that's what doing Militant and Crazy Raw Radio kind of taught me, like, all right, I got to I gotta put myself more in the forefront if I'm going to, you know, secure my positions and stuff. Got you. Well, you mentioned yourself being in the background and being in the shadows. To what extent do you think the role of the listener plays the role of a producer and contributes to creating this Drink Champs narrative we now hear in 2022? How much is the fan, how much is the listener contributing to what goes into this show? Um, I mean, I would say it's it's 50-50, but you know, obviously, without the listeners, without the the fans and and and, and the viewers and everybody that supports, we wouldn't be here today. So, it, I mean, in that sense, it's a hundred and ten percent them driving this. But in terms of what we do and how we do it, you know, we do listen to the fans, but we listen to ourselves. You know, and like I said, it's fifty-fifty, where it's like we know what we're doing it, and we're not doing it just because. What we, we don't do things just because we think it's going to blow or we think it's going to go viral or we think, you know, it's going to make us money. We do what feels right to us. And so that's the 50 percent from us. And then but we listen to our diehard fans. We try to identify. We call them the drink champs army who's with us. And, you know, and sometimes they're mad at us if there's a guest that they don't feel fits the <laughs> criteria. They're, they're but mad. But but, you know, I try to explain to them when I can on social media. Right what the reasonings are and, and, and how these guests come about and what, what one guest, you know, I always try to, people say they, they harp on the legend thing, legends only, you know, Nori did say that, which in my opinion was a mistake early on. You know, I never came into this saying legends only, or you had to fit a certain criteria to be a guest. I felt like anybody that's willing to talk hip hop with us can be a guest on drink champs. But what I did feel is that we're home to the legends Meaning the legends can come here whenever they want. This is their platform to come to where they don't have other platforms to go to. And when we have people that are, you know, might you might not consider a legend, but might be, you know, someone that's relevant at the time. They're they're popping for whatever reasons. I feel like the only people that really benefit from that are the legends that come after them or the the pioneers that might maybe haven't been active on social media. So. So it's it's like a, a tug of war sometimes with the with with our diehards. <laughs> <laughs> Could you remember the last time one of your diehards complained about one of the guests on the show? They disagree. Oh, they complain every every week, every episode. <laughs> every, that's that's the thing too. You can't please everybody. Like yeah. we might have someone that, you know, nine out of ten people agree this is a super hip hop legend, and the one person's like, nah, you need to have this person, you know, and oh, you'll have someone angry because. There's one producer that they've been into their whole lives that's like nobody else, you know, it's like they're not that, like they're obscure. It's a, like an obscure producer that did, that they've been following and they're fans of and they're mad that we haven't had that person, you know? Let me ask you this, in terms of the show and you and Nori honing in on what it is you both do behind the scenes, where does your curatorial practice as a DJ start and end when you're preparing for an episode? Well, I don't prepare for the episodes very much. We just go in. I, I really try to let things be organic. I, I feed off the energy of the guest. And, you know, I take the role as a DJ in the sense that I 
I look at myself, you know, we call ourselves the Eric B and Rakim of, of podcasting. Mm. As the DJ and him as the MC, he wants to be on the mic and he wants to talk. You know? He wants to, he wants to be in the forefront. And me as the DJ, I have no problem with that. Do your thing, man. Like we're not here to overshadow each other. Try it. I'm not there. You know, like like I I really, you know, that's some of the fans will be like, oh, you know, yeah, I want you to say more. I want you to do this. I want. And and I, and I really try to explain to people like, I I talk when I want to talk. I do what I do whenever I feel compelled to do it. And I'm not, you know, I'm not there to, again, it goes, I fall back to, I'm not there to put myself in the front. And I take that in, in going back to what you're saying about the DJ role, like I'm the DJ, he's the MC. I'm gonna let him be the MC, you know, but the DJ don't get it twisted. The DJ controls a lot of what's going on. Yeah, of course. We're talking about a natural chemistry you guys have together. And there's something that translates in these episodes. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't think there's many people, if they don't have a relationship with Nori, like him and I have, that could sit there at all. <laughs> the artist formerly known as Kanye, and he's just now, yeah. God damn it. Oh, yeah. Was it Hennessy that night that with Taylor Swift when you sat there? Because why did you want to do that? You know, <clears throat> well, I was showing both of my addictions. Boy, this there will be blood. Stop fucking with me. My wife, cause she's still my wife. It ain't no, it ain't no uh, paperwork. We appreciate you. We love you, and you mean the world to us. Wow. As I said, I'm worth more than all of y'all on this text combined. When I cut my hair like this, did you cut it yourself or Barbara did that? Let me tell you. You wanna light up? Yeah, you can light up. It's okay. Come on, you my Joe Rogan. Let's go. Yeah. So. have a long list of people you want to speak to between yourselves who hasn't been on a show that you're focused on bringing to the show this year um i mean we were supposed to have mary j blige she's been on the bucket list she was two times we we were had some dates that just didn't didn't happen um like we want to have more women we've always wanted to have more of the ladies on the show but for whatever reason the ladies don't want to make it to us they don't they're not as interested as the men um, so, you know, like MC Light, Queen Latifah, th those types, uh, you know, I would love to have them on the show. Uh, Nicki Minaj, you know, uh, Cardi B even, like, would love to have them on the show, want more of the women on the show. Of course. And then in terms of, like, you know, other artists, uh, you, I mean, there's a ton, and I'll forget a bunch, but, like, Grand Pooba I would love to have on the show. Uh, uh, King T I would love to have on the show. MC Ren I would love to have on the show. DOC, Dr. Dre. Um, Legends. Yeah, I mean Kendrick, we almost had on the show year two, and you know even though he, you know he's one of the younger cats, he's to me he's a legend already, you know, and 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 what he's contributed is immense, and I would love to have him on the show, and and Drake has been mentioned and played with coming on the show and just hasn't committed. I mean, there's just to me there's an endless list of people because I again I feel that anybody could sit there. And first of all, they don't have to be from the hip-hop community. Because me and Nori, we already are enough hip-hop for it to be a hip-hop conversation. Mm. And so I just want to have great conversations with people. And I want to relate them to hip-hop culture. But I want to—I just want to have great conversations. I want to have fun. The show is 
to celebrate the culture, celebrate the guest, whomever they are. We all deserve to be celebrated for one reason or another. I do think about the legacy, um, and it's kind of like two prong. You know, I I love the the idea that we inspired potentially a generation of people to want to be podcasters. Um, any amount of people is 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 dope to me, but I really do feel confident that in at least within the realm of hip hop, we've inspired a lot of people to podcast, and I think that's dope. But on the other hand. The double-edged sword is what I don't want the end legacy and the takeaway from Drink Champs is anything having to do with substance abuse. And I take that very seriously. I've had that in my family. Nori's had it in his family. And um, and and I just, you know, I, I kind of always try to speak on it a little and yeah. and make sure that people understand that this is a show, an entertaining show. It's, it's, it's really – we started as – I had it in the comedy section in podcasting at first. And then we moved it to music because I really felt like we were just have trying to have fun with people. We weren't journalists trying to do these intense Q&A, dig deep, you know, Oprah interviews. And people want that from us, but that's not what we do. We're, we're here to have fun. And, and so I just I always I, you know, I worry about I don't want the legacy down the road for, you know, that we inspired a bunch of people to just get drunk. You know what I'm saying? What about your legacy with the Fatherhoods podcast, which is on Stony Island Audio? Can you speak to your intentions and perspective with this versus Drink Champs? Yeah, man. I mean, that's it's funny because when we started Drink Champs, which this month makes uh, six years of Drink Champs. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. I didn't think it was something that's supposed to be a side little side hustle that would maybe last a, a year at best. Um so before, you know, when we started Drink Champs, I had no children. And then now I hear, here I am with two. And it's been quite a journey. And it's in, and being a parent has, has been a huge, you know, shift in my life and game changer. And, and it's just changed everything. Everything about my life has changed with being a parent. And, it, and it's hugely important to me. And I wanted to... And I still want, and like I'm always looking for for ways that I can include, you know, this journey of being a father and being a parent, and 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 you know, share it and hopefully you know talk about. It. I feel like in hip hop we don't, especially the men, historically haven't been talked about being fathers. You know, like yeah. in, in if anything in hip hop we're looked, you know, the men are looked as like deadbeat dads, and. And I, I want to be a part of the narrative where that's not true, where we're good fathers and we could still be hip hop heads and we could still be fun and do what we do. And, and so that's what, what what was the inspiration between, you know, with fatherhoods, with my partners, uh, KGB and uh, who was he, he and art and executive produced my album with me another time. KGB, he's an old friend of mine, really good friend of mine and Manny Digital, you know, they both work in the industry. And they're and they're both fathers, so that was our goal. Let's 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 talk about fatherhood from from a, a hip hop perspective, but uh, and let's just be open about it. And hopefully, other parents or parents to be, other fathers to be, can get something out of this. Material still has it. Yeah, has Um, 
Crazy hood Just another sunny day in LA Another sunny day in Miami You know how we get it Oh It's a good day to be a B-boy You know uh. Yo, yo, uh I'm sharp as a Puerto Rican's lineup. The bitches come, say focus, get your grind up. I refuse to dumb it down, get your mind up. Fuck what you heard, like ears have vaginas. Coochie dog tags all shined up. I rhyme nastier than homeless people fucking. Yeah. If in production, catch me on collars with a Cubana. Tan cassava's like it's nothing. Yeah, today was a good day. More niggas in the park than a hood day. Can I get these hoes moist like good yay? My music hot, bitch, just push play. Tell haters, hashtag DFY. Go fuck yourself, eat shit and die. Calling LeBron for a reason. I shit a steamer on the chest and I'm leaving for Cleveland. Oh! <laughs> too soon, too soon, too soon. Everything we got in this world, nigga, we earned it. Never follow your rules, took a lighter and burned it. Underground, nah. We right here on the surface Our rap sheet is perfect We rap for a purpose Everything we got in this world Nigga, we earned it Never follow your rules Took a lighter and burnt it Underground, nah We right here on the surface Our rap sheet is perfect We rap for a purpose It's the slow flow Never so-so With the writings One take Can a break like Intermissions In the middle of the map Bottom of the mitten Used to listen through a tape deck Banging out the system Wishing for them flashing Lights to be flashing My way like Cars down down the highway, had to be high, just to be at ease, but most of these niggas dreams turn to memories, but my niggas was like hell nah, don't even know how to spell the word fail, not even in our vocab, we was on the grind from sundown to sunshine, the whole nine, that was old times, at the time, old timers didn't understand what's playing out the speakers, music rumbling the tweeters, make haters turn believers, and ladies that couldn't leave us, you know, out the back door, Maybe fake the black, pull a disappearing act, gone. Didn't mean to stay long, just checking if my mic's on. Yo, we on. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people thought you whipped me where you were!